welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Friends, all right, friends, if you could find your seats, that would be great. Welcome to you all, welcome to you all. If you're going to have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, so you can turn there, Mark chapter 1. Uh, there's a few seats up here in the front, so if you don't mind being spit at by the pastor, come on down to the front. That'd be great. Uh, my name's Micah, if we haven't met. I'm glad to meet you and see you all. Welcome to Awaken on Easter morning, and a fine Easter morning it is, is it not? The birds are singing, the sun is shining. I felt like Good Friday was appropriately kind of gloomy and rainy, and today it's like the, sun, the, the heavens have opened up and the sun's shining. It's like somebody's controlling this whole thing up there. Um... A couple of years ago, my family and I went to Disneyland. Uh, was it Disneyland or Disney World? Disneyland. Um, if you've ever been to Disneyland, uh, this is in California. My wife's family's from California, and the grandparents are like, I can't believe that you've never been to Disneyland. This is unbelievable. Your kids haven't gone, so we're going. So we go to Disneyland, and if you've never been there before, Disney is an experience like none other. Uh, from the moment you arrive, it is as if an army of people have been inspired by some kind of story to create an alternative universe for you to experience. Like, everything is thought of. Not a, grade, a blade of grass is out of place. Like, they have these little miniature, like, Lilliputian villages in between. And there are, like, people out there clipping the grass and, like, caring for these little things. There's music everywhere at Disney. There isn't, like, the, the deer are actually, have speakers in them, and the frogs and the lily pads. And, there's, and it's all playing the same music, and it's all sort of, uh, inviting you into this experience of like the magical kingdom, right? And it was a vision by one guy, a guy named Walt Disney, that everybody, kids and parents alike, all deserve the experience of like a story that's compelling, a story that uh, Walt Disney actually said, he said, it will continue to grow at Disneyland as long as there is imagination left in the world. Disneyland. Everybody loves a little magic, right? A story that compels them, takes them maybe to a dreamy place, a magical place. Uh, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read from Mark chapter 1 this morning. And we stand because uh, we want to honor the scriptures and the word of God. So this is uh, the passage we're going to study this morning for the time we have left on Easter. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah... The Son of God, pray with me. God, this morning we gather in this place as your church, as your people, as a community called by your name and who you were and what you called us to, Jesus. We do so because we believe in the fact that something happened on that day so long ago that has reverberated since and is and will change the world. And so we want to be a part of that story. We want to be caught up in that story. So as we gather today, God, by your spirit, be present to us. However we came, kicking and screaming or with great delight, I pray that you would meet us right here in this place. In the strong name of the resurrected Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Shortest passage ever preached on Easter. You're welcome. One verse. <laughs> My wife and I were at Clada, a coffee shop down the street this week, and there was this group of pastors, and they gather every week, and they talk about the sermon text that they're going to preach. And people were talking about the end of John's gospel, and the end of Matthew's gospel, the end of Luke's gospel, the end of Mark's gospel. Did you know that there were actually a whole bunch of resurrections before the resurrection in Matthew's gospel? 
This is a trippy one. Nobody ever preaches this one, but go back and look at that one in Matthew. Like the, 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 the veil in the, in the temple is torn, and all, it says all these people came out of their graves and were walking around Jerusalem. <laughs> Did you know that happened? I mean, that's crazy, but maybe next year we'll tackle that one. So Laura says to me, like, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm pretty sure I will be the only pastor within a thousand miles of Awaken preaching this text on Easter morning. Not a lot of people preaching Mark 1.1. And you might be asking, like, why? Why would you preach one passage from the beginning of Mark's gospel and not the end of Mark's? I mean, this is the Super Bowl of church. This is the World Series. This is the Oscars of film. This is the Grammys of music. Why that passage? I want to suggest to you this morning that the opening of Mark's gospel, one verse, one half of one verse, is quite possibly one of the most compelling and politically and theologically charged subversive counter-narratives that you will ever find in literature, in any literature, that this one verse is so counter to all the other stories that are being told. And you can't overestimate the power of the nature of these 14 words. To those who heard it first, this is like, Mark, this is like Mark's cosmic Ross Geller from Friends. To anyone in power, right? To anyone in power in the first century. You know, it's one of these. To all of those folks. It's the kind of thing that you can get killed for saying. It's the kind of thing that you can get killed for believing. Like this is the Mockingjay rising from the ashes, you know, opposing the empire and the capital and all, everybody who's in power. Like you could make movies about this kind of thing. <laughs> Did I deliver that okay? Did I rush it at all? Like, this is the moment in the party when the kid stands up and says, the emperor has no clothes, and everything is exposed for what it is. It's like one tiny little verse, and most of us miss it because we're still in line getting popcorn, but I think it's all right here. It's all here in this verse, these 14 words. So I want to explore it today a little bit. I want to offer to you two ideas, just two, as you leave to go sit and dine on whatever Easter fair you will be having, two ideas, and they are these. Animating narratives and the counter-narrative. So what's an animating narrative, you might say? What's an animating narrative? According to my definition, and I'm the pastor preaching today, so I'll give you my definition, uh, it's a story that shapes, impacts, influences, and ultimately determines how you live and act in the world. It's a story or those stories that shape and influence and impact our lives to the degree that they actually change the way we act in the world. They're, they animate our lives. Um, some of you might be wondering, like, what is this glove doing here on Easter morning? Which, I kind of put it here to sort of tease you all, like, wonder what he's going to do with that. And if you're wondering that, I've got you right where I want you. Uh, I thought about reenacting the scene from Liar Liar when, G when Jim Carrey has the pen, and the pen but I decided not to do that. And I just, we'll just go with the glove. But you and I, like, as people... We are, uh, we're a combination of two things. We're like uh, pieces and soul or animation. We are in one part like bones and skeletons and blood and skin. And then there's this other part, soul, spirit, breath. It's as if like our bodies without soul and spirit are unanimated Gloves. By the way, if anybody lost these, I have the other one in the back. These are in the lost and found. So if you're missing a pair of choppers, I have them. <laughs> but it's as if like you and I, without soul and spirit and breath, we are like unanimated 
gloves, but then there's this thing that enters our body, and I wanted a, if somebody could leave me a glove with fingers next time, it would be a better illustration. But like, something enters our bones and our, our bodies, these unanimated things, and they begin to live. They take on a life of, and the pen that I hold in my hand is royal blue. Sorry. Second hour will not get that. I want to suggest that our lives are animated by something. That there is a spirit, a story, something that dictates, influences, acts, and makes us be in the world. There's a guy named Harold Goddard. He's a PhD in in, uh, literature, and he says this. The destiny of the world is determined less by the battles that are lost and won than by the stories that it loves and believes in. Stories shape us. They animate our lives. So an animating narrative is something that speaks, that shapes, that influences, and impacts how we live in the world. One example of uh, an animating narrative that I experienced in my life. So I was in seventh grade. And I was about four foot six, about 75 pounds, just a real, real strapping young lad. And uh, I lived in a home where we had everything that we needed, right? And, but maybe not everything that I thought we needed, which could also be said as everything I wanted, right? And as a seventh grader, one of the things you're very concerned about is your image and popularity and who's who and the, the whole pecking order of the social class and system in junior high school. And at the center, of like who was popular and who was in in my seventh grade experience was one item. It was Jabot jeans. You guys remember these? Like if you didn't have that little piece of cloth sewn to the flap of your zipper, you were out. And it was like, you, you literally, like you could see who was popular and who wasn't in seventh grade, and it would be consistent with who had Jabot jeans and who didn't. And I, friends, did not have Jabot jeans. They were like $55 a pair. And I've got three children, and the other day we went to Old Navy, and they were all picking out things at full price, and I was like, no, that's $29. You can't have that. Go to the clearance rack. $55. I had four brothers. Of course you can understand. If you buy Jabot jeans for all five of us, that's 200 and some dollars. We're not buying Jabot jeans, so I didn't have any Jabot jeans. And I felt like, like my popularity and who I was as a human being was, was connected to this pair of jeans to the degree that there was a girl in my seventh grade class, she shall remain nameless, but she was a klepto. Like she sold stuff. She had this whole ring of kids who would help her secure, like literally they would go into shopping malls and they would steal things. And people knew about this and you could get any number of things from said person, the kleptomaniac. And so I thought to myself, I need a pair of Jabot jeans, people. So I approach her covertly in the hall one day, and I say to her, I've been saving my pennies and saving my dimes. Any chance you could get your hands on a pair of Jabot jeans for me? She says, absolutely. And the Halloween party of the year is coming up. So this is a big night. Like, I got to be, you know, dressed to the nines for this thing. So she does her deal, calls in her, her partners and her executives and her ring of uh, covert operations, and they secure for me a pair of Jabot jeans. Now, when you ask somebody in seventh grade to go steal a pair of jeans for you, beggars can't be choosers. You know what I'm saying? Four, six, 75 pounds. She got me a pair of black Jabot jeans with the little flap tied, sewn right on the deal that were like 36 30s. 
Now, I currently wear 30-32s, okay? So you can imagine, as an adult, I would be swimming in 36s, but as a four-foot-six, 75-pound kid, I'm like, I got my Jabot jeans, baby. I rolled those suckers till the day was long. I had those things like all, and just ratcheted the belt down, and I went straight to the Halloween party with my Jabot jeans. This was a story that dominated and impacted and influenced my life to the degree that I asked a seventh-grade girl to steal a pair of jeans from me from the department store. Animating narratives. There are things, there are stories that dictate and influence and impact how we live our lives. Did you know there's a whole, a whole million dollar industry about the psychology and architecture of shopping malls? Like an animating narrative in our lives is the more money you have, the better off you'll be because the more stuff you can buy. And that is a narrative that is so strong and so prevalent and so alive among us that there is executives and businesses built around this idea to the degree that they Architect malls in certain ways so that you, the consumer, will feel certain things when you go there so that you will buy more stuff. And actually, Minnesota, you should be proud, the first ever shopping mall, Southdale Shopping Mall in Edina, Minnesota. The Viennese architect, a guy named Gruen, they call it the Gruen Effect, or another uh, word for it is scripted disorientation. So when you go to the shopping mall, you'll notice when you park, everything's kind of quiet and subdued. There's not a lot of images because they want you to feel like you have to decompress from your life. And then when you enter the mall, the, the common spaces, hard reflective surfaces, lots of patterns on the floor. People who are, have ADD love it. There's loud music, there's people, and all the surfaces are hard, so all the noise is reflecting. So much so that it actually makes you feel like you want to go into the store. Like that's the sanctuary. And when you enter the store, except if it's Abercrombie or those dumb ones that the kids go to where the music's really loud, so anyone over 40, when you go to L.L. Bean and Eddie Bauer... The music's a little quieter, and the lights are a little softer, and you feel, like, at peace, like, relieved that you're there. People are behind this, pulling strings, friends. This is like the Wizard of Oz. This is an animating narrative in our culture. Now, you might think to yourself, these are anecdotal and silly, Michael. What do they have to do with Easter, Jabot jeans, and the decompression zone, and scripted disorientation? Great question. In Jesus' day and age, there was if not the, one of the most powerful and strongest animating narratives that the world has ever known. And it was called the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire perfected the telling of a story in a certain way. And at the center of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, when Jesus shows up on the scene, at the center of the Roman Empire, there were a few ideas. One was the good news of Rome. The good news of Rome... Basically, the Roman Empire, at its zenith, covered Spain to like Saudi Arabia and Britain all the way down to southern Egypt. It was gigantic, massive. It was like the entire known world at the time. And it was conquered and is secured by brute military force. Conquer or be conquered. And when the Roman military would invade, they would in inevitably win because they were the most advanced and the most technological. They had all the war tools and, and the most people. So inevitably, inevitably they would win. And when they conquered you, you could submit or die. And when you submitted, the empire would expand, would, would send a message to all of the other outposts and garrison in the empire. And the message was this. Good news from Rome. That the empire has expanded and the safety and the security and the prosperity that you have as a citizen of Rome, it's secure, it's safe. 
Good news, friends, good news. And in Greek, the word is euangelion. Now, you might be looking at this word, and you might think to yourself, that looks eerily familiar, which is good because it is. The word evangelical comes from it. The word evangelism comes from it. The word that we translate good news, the gospel, is euangelion. And so at the center of the Roman Empire and the story that dominated Jesus' day was good news from Rome, the gospel from Rome. That peace has been brought to you by the Caesar. The second idea, at the center of Rome's story. That peace was brought to you. Caesar will save, protect, and bring you peace. The promise was the Pax Romana. Maybe you've heard about this if you've studied history before. The peace of Rome. So long as you don't object... Rise up, disagree, you bow a knee to Caesar and you pay your taxes, then all of the benefits of the Roman Empire are secure and for you, the peace of Rome. And so long as you keep playing this game, then what you get is peace. Don't mind you that the peace was secured by brute military force, and when you disagree, we'll crucify you on a hill. Let's not talk too much about that, but only when we need to. But what the people heard was peace. Peace is brought to you by the Caesar who is Lord and the Son of God. Julius Caesar was the first Caesar of the Roman Empire, and he was believed to be divine. They thought he was a divine, like born from divine uh, circumstances, and that he himself was a deity, a god. And so any of the sons born after Julius, to Julius, or into that family were, of course, called, you got it, friends, the sons of God. So if you're in Rome... One of the things that you're asked to say and repeat over and over and over again in the city center and at different social events is Caesar is Lord. Now, Lord means in Greek like someone who has ultimate power over things. So there's this guy. His name's Ethelbert Stauffer. Ladies in the room who are pregnant, I'm just giving that for free. Ethelbert Stauffer, and this guy is a historian, he studies the Roman coins. Because if you want to know something about a culture, study its money. And on the coins of Rome, he found these phrases. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. Which sounds a little bit like what Luke says in the book of Acts. He found there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Which sounds a little bit like what Paul says in Philippians. He finds Caesar is Lord, and by 6 BC, there's a phrase that's inscribed around the empire, and it's this, August has been sent to us a savior. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news. Come on, people! Now read Mark's gospel again. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It's like a match in a gunpowder shop. You can't get more subversive than that beginning. You can't say more with so little. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. This morning, whether you know it or not, your life is being shaped and has been shaped by stories. You have to make more money to be happy. You won't be good enough, you aren't good enough, and so you have to keep earning your worth and your value. You actually don't belong, and you're not worthy of that love, so you have to secure it yourself. 
America first. Power, military strength, bombs, guns, and war is how peace is secured. There's not enough to go around, so you better get yours while you can before somebody else does. Your value and your worth is actually connected to what you produce, own, wear, and can buy. Friends, I'm here to remind you that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah is a counter-narrative that Mark and the Gospel writers put into the system, into circulation, that stands from the mountaintops and says to all the other narratives that these are zero-sum games and they all end in the same place. They begin and they end with you at the cost of someone else. All the narratives that drive the world that we live in begin and end with self. And insofar as they do, they're selfish and they're zero-sum games. They do not have the power to generate new things in the world because they're about you and they're about me at cost to the other. And so Mark says the beginning of the good news, the good news, the, the, the gospel, not that peace is brought to you by military and bombs and war, but no, but by self-sacrificial love. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, not Caesar, but Jesus. The good news about Jesus the Messiah and what we know about God because of what we know about Jesus is this. All of the inevitable outcomes of the stories and the narratives that dominate and have dominated our lives, stories about selfishness and ambition and envy and strife that ultimately end in death and evil, have been swallowed by the sacrificial love of God. And you, we, me, have been invited to let this story impact, shape, and influence our lives. Gang, I come here every year on Easter, and I, I recognize that there are a bunch of people in the room who say to themselves, really? Like, seriously? Can we just stop for a second and be honest? We're gathered because we affirm that a human being died, and then three days later was rose from the dead. Like, that's a leap, okay? To those looking in from the outside, it's like, cuckoo, 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 right? Like, nobody does that. Find me the last person that you knew of who died and was resurrected, and I will just gladly say with more authority and convince, you know, like, this is true. If this guy died at the hands of the Romans and was resurrected by the power and love of God three days later, then everything changes. And all of the stories that we've been told in our lives and that we have heard over the course of history about humans are exposed for what they are. And there's one story. And I would argue that if you find a version of a story that's not about self, it finds its home here in this story. There's one story that's generative and powerful and life-giving because it's about love and sacrificial love. That's the engine of the universe. That's the seeds that grow in the world. Everything changes. Love wins. Sacrificial love. It's the engine of the universe. It's the only thing that lasts. Death and evil do not have the last word. They are not how the story ends. And you, this morning, wherever you find yourself today, I would say to you, this story affirms and says, you are not alone. 
you're not alone. Because resurrection changes everything. So I want to offer to you this morning, for your consideration, the possibility that this story we're invited to allow to shape us, to allow it to become the center of our lives, so much so that it impacts and influences how we live in the world. And I would argue that when we stand in the face of death and we look it right in the eyes, that this is a story that says there is more beyond it. So live in it and see if it doesn't change the world. See if it doesn't change you. See if it doesn't change me. I can't force you to think anything or believe anything or do anything, but I would submit to you that this is the only story which is for the world and for everybody. It seems as though everybody's welcome in this story. It seems as though anybody and all who come knocking at this door are welcomed home. And for me, it's the best story I've ever heard. Pray with me if you will. God, this morning, as we take a moment in silence to reflect on and think about, I pray that you would meet us like you met Mary in a tomb, like you met Peter, like you met John, like you met any of those who were looking for you on that resurrection morning. I pray that today, amidst this space, and in the next few moments of silence, that you would visit us again. Do it again, God. I pray that resurrection would have happened and would happen today in our lives. So find us here. Here we are, God. As we close our time together this morning, um, I think it's important that um, we don't just talk about ideas. And so uh, I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment um, a guy named Mike Donnelly. And for a father and a mother um, who have lost their son, uh, recently, what does resurrection mean and what is the hope of the gospel has been a really important conversation. And so Mike is going to come and he's going to read a poem that he's written about this journey. And we want to end here because you all leave and you go home to like actual lives where you have to wrestle with the implications of this story and if it's true and if it's going to be the center of your lives. And so maybe more than anything I could say, uh, we want to offer this to you as a real person, a real mother, and a real father who lost a son and what the hope of resurrection means to them. So... But the angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell. Pause. Rewind. If we're going to experience resurrection, we have to go back. We have to go back to the dark place and look around and remember how it felt to know how much it all cost. To feel the celebration of day three, we have to go through the silence of day two and the suffering of day one. Day one, the day of shock, loss, finality. The day when the most feared thing happens. When the bottom drops out, the door is slammed shut and bolted tight. That's it. That's all. It's over. What you thought was true has come into question. On day one, you think, were the promises a lie? Where is God and why has he walked away, turned his back? How can there even be a tomorrow when there's been such an ending? What good did all the faith do? The sun sets on this day like a sealed tomb. Impossible. Unfathomable. But real. Final. Day two. The silence after the storm. The aftermath and the cleanup. There's nothing to say, so you just move from one task to the next. No more taking life for granted. No more normal. A time of yearning, of reaching forward and backward at the same time. Wanting, not having. During day two, faith is put to the test. Do you really believe what you said you believed before? There's a chance to breathe, to take stock, to establish a new way of living. No telling how long day two will last. You don't have any idea what to do or what meaning can be found in the silence. The sun sets on this day like a sigh like eyes closing with exhaustion on the edge of a sleepless night. Day three. Early, the sun peeks up from the horizon like a secret, ready to shoot up and shout out, wake up everybody. But instead, it dawns slowly. It dawns on a few people, then more 
and more. And by the time the sun has risen, the world has already changed. Step inside that awful place where death laid and look around. See it transformed. See with your own eyes that the ending is the thing that has died. See face to face the fulfillment of every yearning. Receive the thing you never even dared hope for. Embrace, embrace the living one, living. Look at the discarded chains. Listen to the song of sorrow abandoned mid-syllable, no longer needing to be sung. Breathe in the fresh air no longer rotten by decay. It's springtime. It's green and yellow and purple and blue and white and gold. Look at the world reborn, the sun blazing, the burden lifted, the smile of God breaking onto every face in every place. My friends, my brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer for you today is that you leave with that as the desire of your heart. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Blow through the caverns of my soul. I don't know where you've come from today or what you go back to, but our invitation as a community is to walk, to say yes to this story and letting this story influence and impact and dictate and determine how we live our lives and what kind of people we are because of the hope and the faith that we have that God raised a man from the dead and said evil and death does not win and it is not the end. And that love, love actually wins the day. So if you want to be a part of that, then just say yes to it and join it. Follow in the way of this person named Jesus and we'll figure it out together. Say yes, say yes. As you go today, know that our prayer team is available to pray with you and for you. If you feel like there's something that God might be stirring in you. Um, we feel pretty strongly about relationships and uh, there's not a box you can check or anything. But if you want to talk to somebody, Jenna, our associate pastor, will be in the back. Uh, and we'd love to know who you are and we'd love to get to know you uh, and figure out what it means to follow and what it, the next step looks like for you. So take advantage of any of those. And leave with this blessing, which has been said over the people of God for thousands of years, started by a guy named Moses and continued by knuckleheads like me. I say it to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He is risen, grace and peace. See ya. Find us online at www. 
at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.